Can changing your corner of the universe change the world? We think so. You've heard the quote, be the change you want to see in the world. But what does that look like? This is where we meet the people that are walking that out. One person, one idea, one decision at a time. Here's Baden and Rex. All right. Welcome back to another episode of My Corner of the Universe. Today, we had the pleasure of interviewing Katie Fiedler from Open Arms International. And this is an organization that I had heard of before, um, and you may have as well. But gosh, hearing what they're doing over in Kenya is really amazing just to see how an organization can grow. And she said that back in, I think she said 2003, they purchased 54 acres. Um, and now from just having, you know, empty land to what they have now, they have dairy farm, they have medical facility, they have uh, a school, uh, numerous houses for, uh, you know, children's homes. So it's really, I mean, they're quite a compound that they've been able to set up over the last 15 years. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it sounds like really such a magical place, a place that I'd love to go visit, yeah. help out and see. Um, and just hearing the, her story about, so if you've listened to our podcast for a while, um, we interviewed uh, an organization a while back from Kenya and just learning about the poverty there and the needs and the street children, the amount of kids who are either orphan or just the, the, the really unfortunate situations that are going on. And um, kids there that are literally dying star of starvation that we don't really see here in the United States or if you're listening in Western Europe, um, to be able to see organizations like Open Arms International, what Katie is doing, helping these people out, it just warms your heart, but it also makes you think like, gosh, there's got to be ways that we can help out, right? You know, and sharing this message helps out, donating helps out. She gives a couple of really great options to yeah. volunteer and help out. Like, you know, when it's not COVID time, you can actually go there and help out physically. You could donate. You don't have to donate a lot. You know, your money stretches a long ways. But she also talked about ways that you can literally be a volunteer from your home. Um, you don't have the money and we can't travel right now. There's ways that you can help out this organization just from your home. Yeah. And when times are tough, uh, you have to get creative and she talked about how they got creative over there, but also, I mean, being able to, you know, help out in your home since everyone's staying home right now is, is really a neat way to be able to get back to an organization. Yeah. It was really interesting too, to hear her talk about how COVID changed and affected the grounds there and how they had to do with lockdowns. And then also just the growth that came from that. Um, and just, you know, just overall, I just, I was just so impressed with, what they have done with Open Arms International in Kenya. Um, I think you guys are going to really, really enjoy the episode. And hopefully after you're done listening to it or in the middle of it, you're Googling or checking them out and seeing their pictures, follow them on social media. Um, their website is openarmsinternational.org. And that's pretty much the same handle on most of the social media platforms too, to be able to get pictures of the kids and see more of what they have going on there. Yeah, and um, stay tuned because Katie is going over there next month and we're going to try to connect with her when she's over there to uh, you know, be able to see and talk to some of the kids on the grounds over there. So we're really looking forward to that and that will be coming to an episode near you soon. So yeah. enjoy the episode, like and share, and thanks again.
Welcome to another episode of My Corner of the Universe. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Katie Fiedler from Open Arms International. It is truly an incredible organization. You guys are going to love this episode. It's one that I think is really going to touch the emotional heartstrings for each and every one of you listening. Um, And after or midway through this episode, I know you're going to be trying to Google or go to their website to learn more about them and what they're doing because it's just going to be such an exciting episode. Katie, thank you for joining us today. Oh, what a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's start off um, with our typical question like we always do, but it's always good to know is tell us a little bit about the background story of Open Arms International, kind of how it came from, how, how the idea popped up and then how it became an idea to a reality. Yeah, in 2003, um, a couple from Oregon were living over in the UK and working on a project there for an association. And they are a pastor and a registered nurse that were living and working there together. And then when they were finished with this project, which was a big evangelistic outreach um, program for a really well-known evangelist, uh, Luis Palau, um, they finished this project and then there was a couple there that said, hey, if you could do anything you wanted to do, what would you do? We would like to help you and fund that. Could you imagine having somebody just offer to fund your dream? Yeah. And so this couple um, said, we would love to take our two talents, medical and ministry, and put that together and reach kids in Africa. And so that was their first goal was to start working in Africa. And this couple did. They funded them and got the whole thing kicked off back in 2003 and picked the name uh, Open Arms International. It's been that since the beginning. And uh, the couple now are doing different things. Um, one of them, the the wife, Rachel, she is still in Kenya and um, her husband is, is doing other things now, but she's still very, very much dedicated to running uh, the program in Kenya specifically. So it started out as just taking teams over and doing a variety of projects. And then as time progressed, they saw the need for not just coming and going, the kind of love them and leave them approach that um, if you're familiar with short-term service projects or short-term mission teams, It's always great to take a group over and make an impact, but then what happens when you leave? And they decided that it was best to put roots down in one city, and so they chose Eldoret, Kenya, and that's how it got started. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask that too. Yeah, Eldoret is um, near the Ugandan border. So when you fly in, you fly to Nairobi and then take another short flight um, out west toward Uganda, and Eldoret is the name of the town. Nice. It's such a cool thought. Like, I feel like it's like a high school counselor thing to be like, if you didn't have to work, <laughs> if money wasn't an issue, what would you do for your life? But it's like it's never really a reality. Like, like you said, not many times in our uh, life does somebody actually come up to us and say, "Hey, I'm going to fund whatever you want to do. What do you want to do?" So that's a pretty cool story that they got to that point. Yeah, yeah, it is remarkable. And there's still one of our major funders today, uh, which is spectacular. So Open Arms has an office in the UK. That's actually where it originated in Manchester and uh, in Portland and in Texas. And um, we have a small staff where there's seven of us, but we generate quite a lot of work um, here out of the US office. And there's three in the UK office. And then, of course, our village in Kenya has uh, a very large staff. How many years uh, have you guys been around now? It started in 2003. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. 
And the village in Kenya, um, let's talk a little bit about that. Like, is it pretty good size? Is multiple structures? What, just kind of paint that picture for people of, so they can visualize what it's like in that village in Kenya. Yeah, when we um, decided we needed to put roots down there, we were looking for property. And uh, property, once you are um, identified as a Westerner looking to buy something. <laughs> you, Prices go up. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, which, which I get, you know, it's an uh, impoverished country. And of course, they need the funds. And I've always, you know, struggled with that a bit about that balance of being taken advantage of, but mm-hmm. also we have resources. And if those resources can bless a community, which is what we want to do, then we want to have a fair and balanced approach to purchasing things. And so the the property was um, scouted out and then we ended up buying 54 acres in 2006. Wow. So we have 54 acres there that um, encompass 10 children's homes We have three guest lodges where teens come over and can actually live and stay and work at the village. We have a, we call it the Life Center building, which is a large administrative building. It has a medical clinic and also houses some of our schoolrooms. And then we have a school uh, with four school buildings and 250 students that come to school there. And we have 157 full-time residents, um, children that have been rescued off of the streets and now have a home in a Kenyan family model. Uh, From the beginning, we didn't want to be an institution. We really wanted to provide a home where kids could come in and experience having house parents and aunties and siblings. And so our homes range from between 16 and 20 kids in each home. And then we have a baby home as well. So when we take in infants, we have a special place for the infants to go. Uh, So that's, that's basically the structure of it. And on top of that, there's a dairy farm and we now have agricultural projects. And so we're working toward being as self-sustaining as we can. Uh, We're not quite there yet, but we've got the, the milk, the eggs, the chickens. Uh, We've got Maze, yeah. yeah, yeah, we're about 30% um, self sufficient with what we can grow and produce uh, there on property and then have our kids consume it. Where are you guys uh, rescuing the kids from? That's such a great question. So, um, Eldorat is um, full of very impoverished. Uh, people. And it's a it's a community that has this interesting juxtaposition of a thriving city center with um, a teaching hospital and lots of really cool things happening that are very progressive. And then you've got the extreme poverty all there in the same communities. And so there are a few slum areas that we have our eye on and we partner with organizations that are working in the slums to identify by the most needy kids and the most vulnerable that they are watching. They see children that end up on the street. They don't have a place to go. Um, There are social workers in town, fortunately, that do their best to try and reconnect them with a family. But if they find that there really is no opportunity for this child to be anywhere else but on the streets alone, then they contact us. So our children are brought to us by social workers that have done some pre-work to try and make sure that they truly are in need. Um, In the past, we've had um, some families bring us children where, sadly, but understandably, they know where their families are, but they know Mm -hmm. they they would be better off in our village. And Mm -hmm. so we've had to uh, really vet over the years since we've been operating properly as a children's um, home since about 2010. um, We've had to really be careful 
about how we take in children because there are so many in need and we yeah. want to make sure that we're reaching the most vulnerable. Um, just a, a quick story. When I was there in October, um, I happened to be present when a mom that had a four-month-old baby uh, living on the streets with her came into our village and gave us her baby. And uh, it was the most moving experience. Uh, the social worker came with her. They called ahead of time and said, we've identified this mama. Um, she's addicted to glue sniffing, which is a really mm. common way to yeah. numb pain. And she has a four-month-old. Um, the baby was premature. We've been watching her. And we think it would be best if she could bring her child to the village. So, of course, we said yes. And she... Um, she just had the most saddened yet grateful look on her face, that mixed emotion of, mm -hmm. I don't want to give my baby up. You, you knew she loved her so right. much, but she knew that the best thing would be for her to be in our care. And the social worker told us that she took special care that day not to sniff any glue. She wanted to be completely sober when she made this choice. And it was obvious when uh, we held the baby and, and looked at her, she had done her best to take care of her. I mean, she was clean and well cared for. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I had the privilege of spending the first night with um, baby Faith is her name. Oh. Um, and I'm a, I'm a Nana now. So it's been a long time since I had a, a baby baby, <laughs> but I'm telling you all those motherly instincts came, back, came right yeah. back in right. and she did so well. You know, we were concerned about her having drug addiction herself um, mm. and withdrawals and would she take to a bottle? She'd never had a bottle, never had formula. And would she even sleep? because she's used to sleeping on the street with all the street noise yeah. and she did so well she woke up a couple times during the night but she took the bottle she took the formula she's i mean it was amazing and in the morning she was all smiles and happy and giggly and um so we we were just so honored to have this life and i felt so honored to be there to help in that transition of this life coming into the village and knowing that she wouldn't have to spend another night on the street and we do make arrangements with parents that we feel are safe if we know their families and we know that they're safe then we will allow them to come and see their children and we don't want to disconnect them from family yeah it's very important great. i was going to ask that too because i think that was the question that popped into my head was like, how does that work, you know, where that mom drops the baby off and then let's say two years, she's totally sober. She's like, hey, I would like to have my child back. You know, it's not something like where we think of in the U.S. where like CPS took the kid and has to go through right. a court system. Is it, is it, or how does it, how does it work? It's a great, great question. We do have a lot of pro proper paperwork with um, the child welfare department there in the city. So we are in close communication. We're actually the number one referral agency if they have a child in need. Um, we have an excellent reputation with them. So paperwork is a big part of that because we certainly don't ever want to be accused of trafficking. That's mm -hmm. obviously a huge issue. Which and is issue in Kenya too, right? A huge issue in Kenya. Kenya. Yes. So we don't want to ever be accused of that. We don't adopt our children out. Um, that isn't anything that even is a consideration for us. Mm -hmm. We want them to stay in Kenya. We want them to be um, Kenyans. Um, so when we do identify kids, which we did um, during COVID, we were wanting to give our older kids the opportunity to go back into their families if they were able and, and ready to do that. So we exited 11 of our kids. And in that process, we went through and made sure that their families were stable. Uh, we gave the family a stipend. 
so that they were, you know, able to take on an extra mouth to feed and made sure that the um, environment was safe for them, that the child was going to be able to have their own bed and all the food and care mm-hmm. that they needed. And then we're in close contact with the families and the, and the kids as well. So we do um, take a lot of care in making sure that if we exit a child, that we know exactly where they are and where they're going and it's a safe place to be and all the proper paperwork is done. Do you have what? any, has that ever happened where you exited a child and they want to come back and volunteer or help out? Yes. That's awesome. That's, I love that question. Yeah. During COVID, when we had to shut the whole village down, it was quite the process because there are a lot of workers that are coming and going, you know, day workers, teachers, aunties, mm-hmm. people that just come and help um, the farm workers. And so we had to close down the village and you couldn't exit. And um, so until it took a few months for everybody to sort out, okay, how is this spreading? What's safe? Mm -hmm. What's not safe? And so for a few months, we had to lock the entire village down. And so the house parents, the aunties, any staff person that decided to stay there, they were there and couldn't go home. And so we had a couple of our exited kids that were in their early 20s that knew a lot about farming. And our farm manager um, was able to stay some of the time, but not all the time. So he trained them to take care of the animals and take care of um, the horticulture that was happening on property. And yeah, so those kids were happy to come back and help. It was really cool. I was so proud of them. And then we actually had some of our older kids come and bring food um, from their family farms and help supplement uh, what we had there at the village. And so seeing that community give back our, our exited kids was really, really powerful. What are the uh, ages that you guys will keep the kids up until until they're like they're eighteen or? Yeah, it is about eighteen, or it depends on when they decide they want to go to college, um, and if they can exit earlier, they will. If there's a program outside that they want to go to, then we'll help them go to a program outside. A lot of the best high schools are boarding schools. And so some of our high schoolers are those with the best grades when I mean, you have to have the good grades to get mm-hmm. into these higher level schools. So they'll head out and they'll be at a boarding school. So it just, it depends on their own level of aptitude. Um, we, of course, just like our own kids here in the States, you don't know if that, if that kid is destined to be a doctor or destined to be a day laborer, which both are great and important. Mm-hmm. And so we try and do individual counseling and work up a program for them that helps them achieve and exactly what they should be achieving, not expect way too much or expect too little, but help them get out in the world uh, ready to do something to take care of themselves. Are you guys actually doing the teaching or are they actually leaving to a school? Yeah, some of it, um, we have programs on property like farming. Uh, We also build silos. Grain silos are an important thing for um, Kenyan families. Um, You buy grain in bulk and then you have to either fill it with pesticides to keep it from rotting or you put it in a silo. And so we've started this very inexpensive silo program for families to buy and keep their grain safe, which has been really successful. So we teach the kids, some of the kids, if they're interested in that, you know, it involves welding and metal cutting and things like that. Uh, we have a bakery on property uh, several right. years ago. Hello. A um, donor property gave us sounds funds. awesome. Oh, it's amazing! It sounds so cool. I hope you guys at some point would have a, an opportunity to come. Yeah, that sounds yeah. great. 
So kids work in the bakery. Um, we have a medical clinic, kids that are interested in helping learn how to do things in the dispensary or just basic record keeping. Um, wherever there's a chance to learn on property, kids are involved. Um, all the homes have their own little gardens, which we started when COVID hit because we didn't, we didn't know how long we were going to be under lockdown. So they quickly started their own gardens and all the kids, I mean, oh my gosh, when every, every morning when I left my little home um, to go to work in the office at the village, those kids are out there. They're hanging laundry. They're digging in the garden. They're helping cook. Um, one of the moms confessed that uh, the kids are better cooks than she is. <laughs> <laughs> That's we'll talk about like, not just like, I don't know if the word be a blessing in disguise, or at least like finding light in tough times, which is happens yeah. a lot of times where we go through our biggest growth in the hardest times when COVID hit, you know, you're thinking, oh my gosh, like what's going on? Like, is it safe? We got to lock down. This is kind of scary, but look what came from it within the village was, hey, they're different kids probably learned different skills on farming, different kids learned, um, you know, how to garden and do these different things is probably all kinds of cool things that came from what was a very challenging time. They were super creative. I was watching kids just come up with games and activities and ways to keep themselves busy. That was really impressive. Um, I attended a soccer ball making or football, I call it football there, yeah. a football making workshop where the the dads in the homes were taking plastic sacks and wrapping them with twine and making these soccer balls. And it, I was, I was impressed. They were super heavy good oh, for wow. training, but uh, we have a, a soccer pitch uh, there. So the kids were getting very, very inventive. So I agree with you. It was oh, so I have a really important question then is who's the most popular soccer player, football player in the village? Oh my God. Messi they, or Ronaldo? They love Manchester United. Ah, okay. That's a thing. I think it's big. I, I don't, I couldn't name a player, sadly. Yeah. I'll have to ask them. So if we do yeah, this again and we get to the village, okay. yeah, you can ask, you can ask the kids. They'll tell you. Well, I know like, uh, I forget if Joseph, the other guy we interviewed, a lot of kids like this guy, guy Jair Drogba, because he's from the Ivory Coast. He was one of yeah. the like one of the best, you know. And he's kind of older now. He's probably even retired, but he was kind of an iconic player for a lot of <clears throat> young African kids because he made it all the way to the, as one of the elite players in the in the world. Amazing. One thing that's really cool: the kids are runners, and in the Rift Valley where we're located, it is an actual Olympic training center uh, for runners, and it's the right altitude, and um, it attracts people from all over the world to train there. So a lot of kids oh, are interested wow. in running wow. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kenyans are known as some of the best yeah. runners in the world for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. What's, so, mm-hmm. ask, what, what's the what's the kind of vibe in the community over open art like what's the support from the community can i talk a little bit about just overall yeah. in the area that's a great question um one of our top values is outreach and being a good community member so we hire a lot of people from the community um that's important to us um we also have to be very careful about tribal relations and the property sits on two different counties that have two different tribes and two different chiefs and so the political system is really really tricky and i've learned a lot about this over the years how important it is to keep your community happy. And when you're trying to work with two different tribes and hire equally and look like you're being fair and balanced in everything that you're doing, it it can be really tricky. Um, So perceptions can also um, get ahead of you. And 
then it takes repair work. Um, so being in the community is very, very important. So we do um, emergency feeding. When COVID hit, we specifically raised funds so that we could be out in the community and give food and support. Um, we have a school where 250 kids come and half of those kids come from the community. So we're the top rated school in the area and we try and do as many scholarships as we can to support community kids that um, need to be in a good school. Um, we, we do our best to do as many medical clinics as we can. Of course, free medical care is very desirable. And because that's one of our high values is uh, giving people medical care, we do free medical clinics. And when we have the opportunity, we haven't with COVID, obviously, because it hasn't been safe enough to do that, but that we definitely have a reputation for providing free medical care. Um, water is another thing that we provided to the community. We have our property right on the river and we had a project that was funded and completed where we pump water up to a spigot that is outside of our, um, our gates and then the community can come and, and get free water. Uh, and that's a, a big help as well. So there's a number of community days we have, we have the kids come and we provide um, like big field day and have fun. So when the village is open, it's really active and a lot of people can come and go. Um, but doing community work is a very high value of ours. How big is the city or the community around you, where you're located over there? Um, that's a good question. Three, I think it's about 300,000 that okay. are in like the, the city and the town proper. It's, it's bigger than that, but just in our area. Right. Yeah. And then how far outside of the city are you guys located? About 20 miles. Okay. So yeah, it takes a bit to get to the heart of the city, but we're still close enough. Yeah. Got it. Close enough. And how many people would you say are employed through uh, what you do over there? I know you kind of talked about here, but. Yeah, yeah. We have 84 staff members wow. um, that are all Kenyan. And there are two Western faces on the property. Otherwise, it's it's all Kenyans. And that's that's another very, very high value of ours that that's we are. an amazing are operation to have. Yeah, run by really Kenyans. Yeah. Yes. Um it's, it's impressive. I, I mean, I seriously have to say it's impressive. And our executive director and founder, uh, Rachel, who works on property 24-7, she's amazing and has done an incredible job. But having Kenyans be a leading is uh, extremely important to us. Yeah, we're, we're not there to make a little America. And in fact, honestly, guys, it's, a, it's something that we've struggled with as we have come into an age where we're very accessible. Um, we have lots of teams that come over. Of course, we didn't in COVID, but on average, we have around 150 to 200 people coming from the US and the UK every year wow, coming wow. and doing projects. And so in this digital age, <laughs> we're really trying... <laughs> trying to protect our kids um, from getting too Americanized or being mm -hmm. too exposed to Western ideals and even clothing and music and all the things that really aren't best for them. And they're not realistic for them. Mm -hmm. And that's so great. that's, that's really great. we're figuring it out because, <laughs> you know, the kids, as they get older, they have access to phones and then they have access to the internet. And then, uh -huh. you know, we really try and protect them as much as we can on property, but it's, it's, it's near impossible because of the age that we're living in. So our goal is not to create a little America and we really want it to be a Kenyan culture that's developed there. And it's a bit mixed 
because, you know, we've had a lot of people coming and going and influences there, but we try and leave, you know, what's the best of us without contaminating the best of you and, and build that together. How is a infrastructure there? Just out of curiosity, you know, is there Wi-Fi there? Would you have Wi-Fi there? What's power like? I mean, is there a possibility of being self-sufficient with power? You know, you talked about the river, but you guys have like septic systems wells like how does all that work out there yeah we we are in a septic system and it's <laughs> really um, fun to turn the conversation talking about septic. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny when you take people over uh, overseas you guys have probably done it too i mean the, the first thing is bodily functions everybody turns toward bodily function is there yeah. a bathroom in this yeah. village is there yeah um yeah we are we have proper working western toilets so i will say we've americanized that um but yeah the electricity is um unfortunately from the city power source and there are definite talks of how can we do a hydro you know, project that will get us the electricity that we need without relying on the government power because that is tricky. And of course, you have all the elements, you have um, animals, you have all kinds of things that put your uh, power at risk. Mm-hmm. And so that is a, an issue for us. But we have a generator on property. So if power goes out, we, we can do generated power, but it's expensive, really expensive to have power at the village. What but about we do. solar? We have solar. Yeah, great question. We do have solar. So a a few of our children's homes have solar power um, water, and that's great. And we need more of that for sure. Um, It's expensive to do, but we, we need more of it. We've had some grants to get some of the homes up on that. Um, and then Wi-Fi, we do have Wi-Fi. And again, the, the service providers are not super reliable, but we've done our best to get the best that we can. And most of the time, it's it's working pretty well, most of the time, just not nice. super high bandwidth. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Yeah, but we, it's, it's a it's a, a wonderful place. Um, because I've done so many things around the world and, and taken people into sketchy places, I always say, if you're going to cut your teeth on doing some international work, this is like the Fisher Price level yeah. of, <laughs> of going <laughs> overseas. Yeah. It's it's super comfortable and it's safe and we have 24-7 security. And um, so it's it's a great place to, to go if you're interested in trying to integrate yourself into doing something like yeah, that. Yeah, let's, let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how people can physically yeah. volunteer you mentioned projects like is how do people if someone's listening to this and like i want to go there and help out do they contact you directly or do they go, go through a different organization what's the best route for them to be able to to help out we do have a, a team's coordinator and um, she does an excellent job at taking in applications and vetting our teams. Um, so right now the village is closed until we can get past COVID and understand how we're going to be able to come and go uh, safely with people. But in a normal year, um, people would put in an application and they would pay fees and go through a training that we provide and then would spend on average about two weeks. And it depends on the team. You know, we have uh, teams that have come in and created fish farms. We've had uh, teams that have come in and just volunteered at medical clinics and doing health assessments on all our kids or volunteering and working in our school and working with all of our educators. Uh, We've had teams come in and work with pastors in the community or the elderly in the community. So uh, what we do is work with the interest of the group and see where they have skills and where we have need and match that up. And the process isn't very hard. Um, You do need a visa. Of course, you need your passport. Um, um, there's, I don't, who knows what's going to happen with COVID immunizations, mm-hmm. but there isn't right now an immunization requirement to come to Kenya. Um, you do, um, 
right now have to go through a health screening process and have a negative COVID test. And they just announced that even leaving Kenya now, uh, you have to have a negative COVID test. And the U.S. just announced that on January 26th, yeah, anyone traveling internationally coming in needs a negative COVID test. What's the effect of COVID been like over there? I I have to tell you, when this first happened, it was quite frightening um, because in the community, they're they're not as up to date on news and information as they could be, especially in the very rural areas. So when this all happened and people didn't know exactly how it was transmitted and how deadly it could be, people were put in quarantined areas in rural um, parts of the area, and if they left they would be shot wow it was really really serious and so there was a big threat when we shut our village down and then the people were losing their jobs so then the resources were starting to get low Mm -hmm. the ability for people to take care of themselves was becoming endangered we had to let some of our staff members go because we didn't have work for them. Um, we didn't have teams coming in. There wasn't anything for them to do. So unfortunately we had to let some of our team members go, which is really hard and very sad. Yeah. And then locking down the village itself because we have, um, we have so many resources. We have dairy farm, we have steers, we've got all kinds of products. Um, we were concerned about being raided. And sadly, it was oh, a real uh, concern yeah. for us because we were feeling quite vulnerable. And yes, we have great community ties, but when people are desperate, desperate and yeah, totally. poverty is ruining, you know, their way of living, then you know you're you're at risk. And so it was very scary uh, the first few months. And we did um, increase our security. Um, Security is still high there. And I think that's a good thing because um, we've, I think, sent a message to the community through our feeding programs and outreach programs that we've done since COVID. We do care. We care about the community. We want to help you. But we also need to keep our children safe. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our kids have um, vulnerabilities in their health. Um, We are one of few that take in HIV positive kids. And Mm -hmm. so oftentimes we'll find that out after the fact that we don't know that they come to us HIV positive. We instantly do a test. We have protocols for that. Um, The great news is, though, if we get those kids early enough with proper care and treatment and nutrition and medication, we have had seven of our kids turn HIV positive to HIV negative. Oh, wow. That's amazing. it it's it is incredible, but a lot of you know a lot of our kids are vulnerable health wise because mm-hmm. they grow up um, with malnutrition and other issues that weren't treated when they were young, and so those yeah. impact them as they're growing up. So we've done I think an excellent job, and I give a lot of credit to Rachel, the executive director there, um, being a nurse and a medical professional. She took it all extremely seriously, and we raised funds to get the masks and all the sanitary items that we needed to keep the village safe. Has um, it even, been hit hard by? the virus or not too hard overall i just saw the stats yesterday over all in kenya there's about 2200 cases that they know of Mm -hmm. 
the challenge is they don't have the testing readily available. Yeah. And so they're not going to follow the same protocols that we will where, you know, you're encouraged the minute you have a symptom, go get tested or if you're right. exposed, go get tested. They don't have the resources for that. There's also just a big stigma then, you know, as I was saying, you were shot if you left a quarantine area several months ago. And so there's this um, kind of a, a leper <laughs> Um, stigma that's put on you if you go get tested and you know you have it and you your risk of spreading it and people aren't as knowledgeable about how viruses spread or how contagious and dangerous it is and Mm -hmm. of course and as a world we're not sure about how dangerous it is so those sorts of um, stigmatisms and fear really is what it is fear I don't think we know the the true number of cases Gotcha. Yeah, when I was listening to a podcast with a guy in who does work in Malawi, which is really, mm-hmm. you know, poor country, and they said they tried to do a lockdown, but they just, they didn't, they couldn't do it because they're just, it's so poor that they're like, they're like, there's no way we can not work and not do anything. Have you noticed kind of that similarity in Kenya where they're just like, we have to just, like, we can't, like, they don't have the luxury, I guess, like the US or Western countries where like, hey, we're going to pass a $2 trillion stimulus package or this, like, they're just like, if if they lock down, nobody eats and nobody eats, then it gets you know, really bad. You're exactly right. There is zero government support, zero. Mm. And so they have to get on with their lives. And when you go into the rural areas, which I did and traveled out there a bit, um, you don't see people wearing masks because it's life as usual. Uh, They they do. They have to make a living. They have to feed their families and go on with things. Um, In the cities, you know, especially in Nairobi and other the the big places, they're, they're wearing the masks and they're being much more careful about it. But yeah, as you said, I mean, they just don't, they don't have, they don't have the the luxury. They just don't. And I think that's sad for most of the world. Um, I have lots of friends in India. It's the same way. I mean, how do you quarantine a slum with 6 million people in it? Yeah, It's impossible. They're all so such close quarters and, you know, poor, uh, poor sanitation facilities. Yeah. We are so fortunate. And I think uh, one of the things that I just, I love about what what you are doing and it gives us such great perspective at how extremely blessed we are. We're inconvenienced at most. And I know many people have lost their jobs. I I have another uh, company that I own um, that's an events production agency. It's decimated. We can't do events. Mm -hmm. And so I understand lots of people have been hit very, very hard. And at the same time, we have so many resources. And for most people at best, we're very inconvenienced. When people literally are not dying from COVID, they're dying from poverty and starvation and all of the impacts that these um, different lockdowns and um, suggestions for our health have caused the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's quite Mm -hmm. sad. So I think here in the States, we can just count ourselves as extremely blessed. And the more you hear stories about people who have really, really been damaged by this pandemic, I think it hopefully will help adjust our perspectives. Yeah, yeah. Well, transitioning on how blessed we are in the United States, there is another way people can help out too, I'm sure, because you always need financial donations <laughs> as well. See that, yeah. like that swaying of, you know, the, yeah, the little yeah. stimulus check, you know, just throw a few <laughs> bucks over here, you know. I mean, okay, but I do want to mention that because when we when we did interview Joseph with Evie Grace Foundation, who's also in Kenya, he talked about just the importance of like a dollar or $5, like the donate yeah, your money goes way. so much more when you can donate to organizations that are in places like Kenya. So just talk a little bit about how much like a, a $20 donation can, can make such a change for you guys. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you can you can feed one of our families for a week um, with that. It's wow. it's pretty amazing. We do a really good job, uh, but actually, I have to say too, inflation is hurting us because mm. now with the scarcity of food and the whole. Um, uh, system of distribution being compromised over there, things are getting more and more expensive. So yeah, every everything has been impacted uh, for most people in the world <laughs> um, that are in these developing countries as far as access to food and resources that are getting more expensive. So yes, your dollar is stretched um, much further um, in developing countries for sure. And what we have discovered, it costs... Um, we're still doing the math because we're always trying to really calculate how much it costs to care for our whole village. Mm -hmm. And it does cost between seven and $11 each day per person that's being served at the village. So that isn't much, but it, it could sound like much to somebody, but um, it's a, a huge operation. Mm -hmm, and so right. we just encourage people that if you think about it on a daily basis, you know, if you're, you're able to take a $10 bill and go, gosh, I could just, serve a entire human being yeah, <laughs> today for one less Starbucks. Uh, yeah yeah <laughs> for one less starbucks it's great and i don't want to guilt anyone out of their coffee because i love yeah, my coffee yeah. <laughs> but at the same time you know we have such opportunity to share and um i don't know i feel compelled to just comment on the fact that you know since you are highlighting so many different organizations um people often will stop me because i've been in international relief and development for so many years you know why would you send money overseas when there's so many people here that are hurting and need it and we've got our own situations here that need funding and i completely agree with that but what i would tell them is if starving children in Kenya does not move your heart, what does? And mm -hmm. if you're asking the question, why isn't anyone doing about the homeless situation in Portland? Or why aren't we attacking our orphans here in the States, which, which are our foster kids? How come no one's doing anything about that? Well, if that's what keeps you up at night, please give your resources to yes. those things. Yeah. Everybody is called to a specific need in the world. And I just believe that that is how God designed us. And if yeah. we all just follow that nudge and ask, why isn't anyone doing about that? Oh, I can do something about that. Yeah. That's that's me. I believe that if we all followed that nudge, there wouldn't be any needs in the world. We are just created to serve each other. And so I would just ask that if you have a specific heart for Kenya, if Africa has been on your heart, if children suffering with AIDS and a baby that's four months old living on the street with her mama who's drug addicted, if those sorts of things really move your heart, we would be so happy to be a partner with you. And on average, our um, partners give about $55 a month. That helps us so much with when we can do a monthly gift. Mm -hmm. um, we call it our circle of hope. And hope for us stands for the homes we provide, the outreach that we do, the purpose that we find in the community and the kids we serve, and then empowerment, empowering them to do what they've been called to do with their lives. So our circle of hope are people who give every month. And that way we can do our budgeting and count on those folks to help us keep our village running smoothly and effectively. Nice. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was in my notes to ask about the Hope Mission. So I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad you brought that in there. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you did bring that up also because when people do say that and they're like, well, how, what about the poverty in the U.S.? And I always am like, okay, great, but don't use that as, as an excuse to not give to either one or not help out either one. You know, like if you're, if you're like, if you feel like 
you want to spend your resources on helping us domestically if that's where you're from or, or if you're in england or europe or wherever then do that don't just do that don't just say that so then you don't give either way but um i also think it's important that we, like you said we are blessed um where we live at and the resources that we have that when we are blessed it's important to be a blessing to others that we're not born with the luxury and privilege that we were to be able to be born in places you know of wealth where we're at it's so true. And I just, we're just called to serve each other. If you don't have money and you have time right now, mm, yeah. if you don't have anything going on, um, you're laid off, you're whatever. If you have time, find a way to help somebody. You can do that without going anywhere. And I love that about what you're doing. You know, you can reach everybody and go nowhere with what mm. you're doing and just and spread. Do you have any news. volunteer opportunities right now during COVID for people like any sort of online help or processing help or anything they can do? Like, hey, I got time. I'm on unemployment right now and I can help out in this way. Yeah, great question. Um, we love to call our donors and thank them. And so donor calling is a, a great way to help us out. And one thing that's really fun when, when you get to make phone calls, we always ask why, why did you give? And we collect those stories about why people um, have been giving to open arms. Um, we also have, um, if you're local, I mean, we can, we can send you stacks of cards. We write thank you cards and we have mailings that go out um, at different times of the year that we try and process some of those internally. So there's mailings that can be done uh, physically if you're in the area or we can send them to you to process. Um, those are the two things um, right now that we've been able to use outside help without having someone come into an office. Cool. That's great. Yeah. I think people would, you know, be definitely all over a way that they can give back when they don't have money. Cause I know I would imagine funding right now is probably down. Uh, a lot of the nonprofits that we talk to, you know, just because times are hard for people or, you know, might not have jobs like Vaden alluded to. And so to be able to give back through another way is great for a lot of people. Yeah. I, I it just lifts your heart when you get to do something. Um, I just, I, I'm always an advocate for serve somebody else and you will instantly lift yourself out of any sort of funk you may be in. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, Katie, this has been great. Um, really enjoyed hearing about Open Arms International, what you guys are doing, just overall, just the conversation in general. I think you've painted a great picture of what the property's like. It sounds amazing. I would love to be able to go and visit. Um, and just any other thing you want to add on there too with the, with the Hope Mission or is there like sponsor a child type of things? What are other ways that people can either contact you help you want them to go to the website just kind of throw your throw your uh, shameless plug or pitch in there <laughs> at the end of whatever you want people to do well we always like to make sure that our supporters and those that are considering supporting us know that you are literally saving lives when you invest in the village and you invest in the processes and the systems that we've developed to care for children you're literally saving lives and our sponsorship program is really about sponsoring the village versus a, a, a child and I'll tell you what um, we've found vulnerable for us over the years is the in this digital age digitally protecting our children is very important and so we will tell you lots about what's happening at the village what children are experiencing and how they're doing 
but we don't connect you with a specific child just to keep our kids safe. And so we will communicate with you a lot about what's happening when you become a partner with ours, um, but we don't connect you with a specific child for many reasons. Um, but you will get news and information from us um, Every dollar counts. Um, we are audited every single year in all three countries. So we like to really say that um, we are transparent with our finances and our integrity is high and our stewardship is high. Every every dollar is counted. I can tell you that the, <laughs> the house parents are all allocated like a certain number of rolls of toilet paper every month. <laughs> I mean, it is so well regulated. Um, so I've I've found such um, pride in knowing that there's a high level of stewardship there. And so if you want to make an impact in the world, um, go to openarmsinternational.org. You can find us online and see pictures from the village and see pictures of our kids. And if you choose to partner with us, you can be confident that you're going to have an excellent experience being part of our circle of hope or just a one-time giver. We'll be extremely grateful and you will change a life in Kenya. Awesome. What about awesome. other places people can find you? Uh, Facebook or Absolutely. Instagram? Yep. Facebook, Instagram, Open Arms International. Okay, great. You can find awesome. us there. No problem. And we've always got fun stuff going on up there. Um, I'll be going back to the village um, and uh, on February 14th and staying for about six weeks. So um, if you want to reconnect, that would be fun. And yeah, I can get some of the kids yeah. on camera. That would, and, be, that would be great. Yeah, They yeah, are shameless that. self-promoters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was a great little teaser. So you yeah. guys like, like this episode, you know, I'd love to do that. And um, even if you're listening to this and not watching it on YouTube, then that would be a great reason to watch yeah. the bonus episode follow up on YouTube so you can see all the kids as well. Have fun. Yeah. Very fun. Uh, they're they're big hams. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Katie. Uh, Well, thank you, Katie. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. God bless you guys. If you liked today's episode, you can find more information at mycorneroftheuniverse.com. And don't forget to subscribe. Thank you. Have you heard of light therapy? What about photobiomodulation? A fancy way of saying light therapy. Or stem cell activation. That's right. I said stem cells. The big buzzword in health that no one can afford. Well, you can afford it now. Head on over to my corner of the universe forward slash support the show and click on LifeWave. They offer a 30-day money-back guarantee. You can't beat that. So head on over to my corner of the universe forward slash support the show and get started today.